Well, good morning to you again, church. If you're a guest with us, and we have several guests, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here at Glow and Bible Church. We're glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. We'd love to give you a gift. It's a little book that I've written that talks about our aim as a church, what we're trying to accomplish. The title of the book is Following Jesus. Our aim, we like to say, is helping people follow Jesus. It's written on the wall out there in the Welcome Center. And you can pick up this book in the Welcome Center on your way out today. Just through the foyer, there's a welcome booth out there. Grab a copy of the book for yourself. It'll help you get to know us better. I'm reading a good book myself these days. I want to share a little bit about it with you. It's got a provocative title. It's titled Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and a Nazi dissident, so a resistor of the Third Reich. He was hanged by the Gestapo in 1939. I'm sorry, at the age of 39, and I think coincidentally the year was 39 as well, 1939. No, that's not right. Hang on, bear with me. He was 39, the year was 1945, two weeks before the camp in which he had been placed, the concentration camp, was liberated at the end of World War II. All right, we got that? He was executed for his role in the assassination attempt, attempt on Hitler's life. Uh, there was a movie made about this titled Valkyrie, Tom Cruise, played the, the lead role. Bonhoeffer's not featured in the movie, but he played a part in collaboration uh, to, to kill Hitler. Now bear in mind again, he was a German pastor who had been jailed for his resistance to Hitler. Bonhoeffer's pastoral writings are beloved these days uh, by Christians. How many of us have read a Bonhoeffer book? Hey, Y'all are better readers than first service, by the way. I'd recommend uh, certainly everything that I've read uh, by Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book titled Life Together. It's a reflection on the nature of Christian fellowship. It's a great book. It comes out of his teachings in the Underground Seminary. The Underground Seminary was uh, an effort in Nazi resistance to educate pastors and train them up so that they could be a part of the, the clergy's resistance to the Third Reich's movement across Europe. Uh, Bonhoeffer actually did some of this teaching while uh, being held by the Gestapo in a concentration camp. Um, and the book just kind of outlines how best to care for one another as believers. He also wrote a well-known book call, called The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship, it's a reflection on what it means to suffer for Jesus. In this book, Bonhoeffer develops his thoughts on cheap grace, which he juxtaposes to costly grace. Cheap grace is, for example, the notion of forgiveness without repentance. Costly grace is the notion of, ex of resisting, receiving the gift of God and salvation, and then resisting sin in your life and evil in the world, which for Bonhoeffer meant resisting uh, Nazism and German nationalism uh, during the 30s and into the 45s. Bonhoeffer, however, was not always such a clear thinker on these matters. And I want to share with you a little bit of his progress as a follower of Jesus. It's a lesser-known uh, part of his story. At a relatively young age, the age of 24, uh, Bonhoeffer had completed his doctoral work at Berlin University and was awaiting ordination 
in the Lutheran Church. The year was 1930, German nationalism was on a rise. Bonhoeffer embraced the, the outlook that was popular at that time among German nationals, namely that the German people had been persecuted uh, in post-World War I treaties and the debt that was put on their shoulders by the world for the part they had played in World War I. And this notion was latched onto by Adolf Hitler, early 1930s, and, and he's, his claiming persecuted status for the German people and that they should rise up again. And it led to this notion of this Third Reich theology. As history would have it, though, because the Lutheran Church prohibited ordination before the age of 25, Bonhoeffer, when he was 24, finished his doctoral work, couldn't get ordained, found himself with a year to waste, so to speak. And he thought for that year that he would travel to New York City and do some post-doctoral work at Union Seminary there in New York Seminary. Uh, but his real education in New York came as he attended the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, which was the black Baptist church ministering prominently there at that time and in the throes of what is now referred to as the Harlem Renaissance, the cultural renaissance of the African-American community uh, post-Civil War. It was, in fact, the time in which much of gospel music, uh, coincidentally, I should say, having them here today, the much of gospel music started to really find its voice in America. So we have a German, white, Lutheran, 24-year-old divinity student doing postdoctoral work at Union Seminary, but attending church at Abyssinian Baptist Church, an all-black church, and he taught Sunday school there to little boys for a year. And it was there that he was born again. By all accounts, Bonhoeffer came to faith in Jesus Christ at Abyssinian Baptist Church. It wasn't that he had never heard the gospel before. He was, after all, a divinity student, a graduate of German Lutheran Seminary. It was, though, that at Abyssinian Baptist, he discovered not simply an academic understanding of the Savior, but the real ministry of Christ to those who recognized their sinfulness and were willing to receive God's grace and follow after Jesus radically. There he learned of the ministry of the gospel's hope to the marginalized, namely, at that time, the marginalized were the African-American community struggling against systemic injustices under the Jim Crow laws of that era, segregation, 1930s. At Abyssinian Baptist Church, Bonhoeffer met Jesus among the African-American community, a Jesus who stands with the oppressed, against the oppressors, and a theology that challenged his German nationalistic outlook. And he returned to Germany a very different man. He was actually offered a teaching position at Union Seminary there in New York City, a place where he could have comfortably lived out the rest of his life teaching, but having come into the light of the gospel at Abyssinian Baptist Church, he recognized keenly it was time for him to go home to Germany 
and lead a resistance against Nazism and Third Reich ideology. And so he goes home, fully realizing as he crosses the Atlantic that he'll most likely be jailed and give his life in resistance. It's at Abyssinian Baptist he learned of the ministry of the gospel's hope and power. It's at Abyssinian Baptist that he decided to start what became known as the Confessing Church in Germany, a movement of Christian clergy committed to resisting Third Reich ideology, a theology, follow me here, that turned Jesus into a divine representative of the Aryan nation and allowed race hate to establish a rootedness in the Lutheran Church of Germany. At Abyssinian Baptist, Bonhoeffer saw the counterfeit. We sang, there's nothing that compares to you this morning. Nothing. You turn graves into gardens, right? You open the way of the seas. Beauty for ashes. Nothing compares to you, but at Abyssinian Baptist Church, Bonhoeffer recognized that he had actually embraced the counterfeit of German nationalism, of Third Reich ideology. He had refused. He had rejected the true teachings of the gospel when he embraced the false teachings of German superiority. He saw the counterfeit because he had finally come into the light of the gospel. This morning, do we see the counterfeits offered to us in our context? Counterfeits to the gospel. Or have we simply embraced cultural Christianity, which is often wrapped in a thin veneer of nationalistic superiority, which promises greater prosperity, the permission to pursue personal pleasure, and the guarantee of security. Let me say that again. Do we, do we recognize the counterfeits in our context? Or have we simply embraced cultural Christianity, which is oftentimes wrapped in a thin veneer of nationalistic superiority, the promise of greater prosperity, the permission to pursue personal pleasure, and the guarantee of security? Do we see the counterfeit and deceptive teachings offered to us by popular culture, a culture that worships materialism, sexual pleasure, and self-exaltation. Turn with me in your copy of the Scripture of Revelation, chapter 18, Revelation 18. Follow along as I read of God's condemnation of the world's counterfeits. A condemnation that ser should serve as a warning for us this morning. As you're turning there, I'll give a little bit of background as we have many visitors with us. This is our eighth week in the book of Revelation, Revelation simply means revealing. It's God revealing at the, how at the end of time he will overcome all evil and he'll celebrate Jesus. And he'll welcome in all those who are trusting in Jesus. So how he'll conquer evil, celebrate his son, and welcome those who are trusting in his son. That's what the book of Revelation is about. In this morning's passage, God judges Babylon, which is the name of the ancient capital city of the Babylonian Empire. But it's not simply Babylon that's being judged here. 
Babylon is to be understood in this morning's passage figuratively. It's representing a much larger movement. That is to say, all the kings, kingdoms, and citizens of this world who exalt themselves and worship the acquisition of material wealth, the pursuit of personal pleasure, rather than a glorification of God in their life. Follow along as I read. I'm going to just read the first three verses to get us started. After this, I saw an, another angel coming down from heaven. Remember, this is a revelation. It's a revealing. So he, he's seeing something. This angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouts. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations, so it's not a singular nation, for all the nations have drunk, participated, have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries, which is a euphemism for spiritual unfaithfulness to God, our Creator. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. All the nations have entered into this. It's not just about Babylon. It's not just one nation. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. They've entered in to the unfaithfulness. They've joined her. They've followed after her. And, and note this, anybody that earns a living. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants... Those in the marketplace of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. We'll stop there for a moment, and I'll just remind us there's a podcast every Monday. If you can text your questions to that number, then you can listen in. I'll do my best. We, it's not just me. We'll do our best to answer the questions you submit. It could be about the sermon specifically, faith generally. Go to wherever you get your podcast. Search Galeno and Bible Church, what is called the Next Level Podcast. We'll pop right up and we'll do our best to take it to the next level. Throughout the book of Revelation, there is an, an exposure and condemnation of what might best be called, or most accurately described as counterfeits. There's nothing greater than you, we sang, but there are a lot of counterfeits we could get entangled in. These counterfeits that are exposed in the book of Revelation are inevitably enemies of God's person and purposes. They're counterfeits to what God offers us. They present themselves as replacements for God with the hope, those who embrace the counterfeits, with the hope of then receiving the worship that God alone is due, right? We sell ourselves, we give ourselves to these adulteries, these unfaithfulnesses, which inevitably brings judgment on us, potentially. Here's the most obvious counterfeit that plays its way out through the entirety of the narrative of the book of Revelation. Satan, the beast, and false prophet are presented as a Trinitarian counterfeit to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you're familiar with the flow of the narrative, maybe you've picked this out because there are some striking overlaps as Satan does his best to offer a counterfeit. Satan vies in this way for the worship God alone is due by offering this counterfeit. He sets himself up in the place of God the Father, and then he sends out, interestingly enough, he commissions the beast and sends him out into the world as a representative of himself. 
giving him power, authority, to perform signs and wonders by which he leads the nations astray. This should sound vaguely familiar, right? Just as Jesus is sent into the world by the Father, Colossians 1.7, he's the image of God, Jesus is. Satan will send the beast into the world to represent him. And it's interesting to note that in Revelation chapter 13, this beast that's sent out into the world to represent Satan has this wound he absorbs. He absorbs this wound. It's fairly nondescript, but life-threatening. Not sure how he got this wound, but it is life-threatening. And there's this miraculous healing this, the beast has of this wound. It's as if he, quote, has been brought back to life. Satan, again, offering a counterfeit of the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. The beast has a mark, 666, by which his followers are identified. The followers of Jesus have a mark, too. The, the name of Christ is on their foreheads. The spirit of Christ is in them. They're sealed. So you see how the counterfeit plays its, its way out here. Then the false prophet sits out as a witness of the beast. Just as the Holy Spirit sent by the Father into the world to bear witness to Jesus, the false prophet is sent out as a witness, a counselor, so to speak. The Holy Spirit's called the counselor. This counselor, the false prophet, bears, promotes the beast's worship. Just as this morning, if you find in yourself faith rising up, it's not because the preaching's impressive or the singing is compelling. If you find faith rising up, it's the Spirit using preach. It's the Spirit's work. It's the Spirit's using it, um, the singing of God's people. It's the Spirit that causes faith to rise up, whether you're here as an, an unbeliever, just checking out the claims of Christ, or you're firmly a believer but discouraged and, and needing encouragement. It's, that's the Spirit's role. In all this, remember that God alone is the true creator. Satan comes up with nothing original. All Satan can do is counterfeit. He has great power. Don't misunderstand. He does not have divine power. He doesn't have creative power. He has mocking power. So that's, that's a counterfeit that makes its way through the entirety of the narrative. In this morning's passage, we meet a second counterfeit. It grows out of Satan's influence in the world. It's part of the effort to lead folks astray. Yet likewise, likewise meets with God's judgment. It's on the screen. It's the counterfeit of Babylon and the prostitute. So the prostitute comes to the fore in Revelation 17. We'll just touch on it this morning. Babylon is the central um, judgment addressed in Revelation 18. Babylon, again, here is to be taken figuratively a representative of all the kings and all the kingdoms and all the citizens of all the kingdoms that join with this deception, resisting giving glory to God, living for themselves. They make the acquisition of material wealth, the pursuit of personal pleasure, their goal in life rather than a submitting to their creator. This reality is spelled out in verse 3, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. That's Babylon's adulteries, rebellion against God. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. 
joined in that rebellion. The merchants of the earth also joined in and grew wealthy off her luxuries. Those who are led astray by Satan and the beast and the false prophet make up a community or a city, as it were, where they pursue this counterfeit purposes and live counterfeit ends, worshiping the counterfeit gods of material wealth and personal pleasure. This community dwells together in what could best be described as Babylon, this ancient city of idolatry, which simply means they've come together in an affirmation of all that's contrary to the person and purposes of God. As a community who lives together in what is contrary to the person and purposes of God, they're described as a prostitute, Revelation 17. Simply means they've sold themselves in this effort. They've given themselves completely, fully. Whatever it takes to gain wealth, they've done. They're, they're selling their soul for it. Whatever it takes to uh, experience personal pleasure, to put myself at the center of life, they've done it. And so Babylon is juxtaposed, juxtaposed to Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem. And the prostitute is juxtaposed to the bride of Christ. In Revelation 22, the new Jerusalem comes down. Jerusalem was the de- dwelling place on earth of the name of God, the worship of God, the temple of God was there, which Solomon built. There he, he condescended, his presence came down to earth and he received sacrifices that cleansed the holy space so that God's people could come close. The ultimate sacrifice has now been offered so that we can come close to God and we can look forward to the new Jerusalem that will also condescend with the presence of God, bringing his presence to earth. That ultimate sacrifice is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who cleanses us, us, so that we can enter sacred space, that space where God dwells with his people. Ancient Jerusalem was to be a light set on a hill. It was the place of to be the place of justice and righteousness. Of course, that doesn't happen. Israel then comes under the judgment of God. They forfeit their promised land. The the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, and they're ushered into captivity. But there's coming a day when evil's conquered, Christ is celebrated, and the people of God are welcomed back into his presence based on their trust in the final sacrifice, that of Christ's sufficient sacrifice. In this new Jerusalem will live the bride of Christ, not brides of Christ, the bride of Christ, made up of individuals, a collective community, all those people who are depending upon the groom for their fulfillment. Nothing compares to you. This is the people group. These are the citizens of heaven, as it were, who are depending upon the groom to provide for them who paid, as it were, the ultimate bride price, purchasing them from every nation and kingdom, ransoming us and bringing us into the presence of his Father by his sacrifice, the bride price paid. In chapter 19, there's this great wedding celebration. You have the prostitute in chapter 17. You have the condemnation of the city Babylon. But then you have this wedding banquet of the people of God, the celebration of the Lamb. It's a wedding celebration where the bride is brought into the presence in care of the groom physically, and they're reunited. 
hopefully you aren't getting too lost in the mixing of all these metaphors. It's a rich tapestry of what God is doing in the world. Note this, though. Babylon doesn't simply represent one kingdom. And it's, it's not simply uh, the collection of individuals who are rebelling against God. It is that. But it's not simply that. Babylon is more than a figurative name for kings and kingdoms. It's actually much more complex than that. More is going on here than simply kingdoms coming together and citizens in rebellion against God. Babylon represents all the worldly structures of an adulterous society. Babylon represents the real power of systemic evil, systematized evil, at work in the world. It's what Bonhoeffer met at Abyssinian Baptist Church as he became keenly aware of Jim Crow laws and segregation, systematized evil that said separate's equal and had to be overturned. Babylon represents the mechanization of rebellion against God. The mechanization, structures, systems. Let's look at verse 9 through 18 for another description. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they're going to weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they'll stand far off and cry, Woe! Woe to you, great city, which means dread. You mighty city of Babylon, in an hour your doom has come. They're taken aback, not simply by our destruction, but how quick was the destruction, and, and effectual was the, the judgment. The merchants of the earth are going to weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. They're out their profits. The difference between... Uh, Sorry I got caught and sorry I was sinful. You know the difference? They're weeping because no one's going to make them rich anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind of, made of ivory, costly woods, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They'll say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off terrified at her torment. They'll weep and mourn and cry, woe to you, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Babylon's destruction is lamented by kings and merchants of the earth because the systems by which they had grown rich, the structures by which they gained and maintained power, the mechanisms by which they fed their pleasures are gone. They had agreed upon rebellion, become unfaithful to God together, and then Babylon is destroyed. And all the systems by which they were profiting are gone with her. 
and they're sad for themselves. <laughs> How are we going to get rich? Who are going to be the purveyors of pleasure? So Babylon doesn't simply represent the breadth of individual sin collectively, that is sin run rampant in the world. Babylon represents the depth of sin, the architecture of sin in the world. It represents the partnerships of those in power to create systems by which sin is made profitable and available in the marketplace. Have we thought about sin this way? This is often what is referred to as systemic evil. It denotes the economic government structures that perpetuate sinful corruption and oppression, evil in the world. And make no mistake, we live in Babylon. Is that to say that everything in America is bankrupt? No. The church is in America. <laughs> the people of God are in America. There's much good going on in and through America. But we live in a world and in a nation that has erected economies by which sin is made profitable and perpetuated in the marketplace. I'll give you some examples. and These probably won't be as concrete as some would like. Perhaps that'll, I can flesh it out on the podcast. So this first one's pretty easy. doesn't take much to understand. An entertainment industry that exploits sexuality for profit. You sit down to watch the NFL games this afternoon with your kids, and you're inevitably faced with explaining why they sell cars with bodies. Am I wrong? I mean, are we not having the discussion with our children as we sit there? Gosh, cologne commercials are the worst. Entertainment that exploits sexuality for profit. I mean, how many halftime shows at the Super Bowl do I need to cite as just the exploitation of, of flesh? Manufacturing practices that oppress workers for profit. James, the New Testament book, the half-brother of Jesus, is full of the condemnation of bosses who don't pay their laborers fair wages. We should take grave warning there because we're the richest church in the history of the world. The American church is the richest church in the history of the world. There's a lot of prophets represented in this room. I sat with a man this week um, out <clears throat> in the marketplace, and he shared with me that he had made $900,000 last year. And I said, wow, that's quite the burden. It wasn't the response I think he expected. The American church has to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. Economies that promote ecological destruction for profit. Governments that marginalize the weak to maintain power. I think of the Uyghur people. China is shipping off this Muslim group of people because they won't get with the program. There are concentration camps being populated in China, right? We thought that was only something of a 1940s nightmare that was the Third Reich. 
No, it's, man, if you're a secular humanist and you do any studying of the Uyghur people and how they're getting treated in, in China, it would warn you off humanism because humanism is the notion that we're going to get better and brighter as time goes on. It's that we're learning from our mistakes. I just don't see it. If I were a secular humanist, I would be, I'd be terrified by what's going on in China and in North Korea. Social and political networks that perpetuate racism for power. America certainly has had her history there. Do we recognize the counterfeits of Babylon today? Living in Babylon today, it's easy to be seduced by those who have sold themselves to the pursuit of material wealth at all costs, even if it means exploiting sexuality, oppressing workers, and destroying creation. Living in Babylon, it's easy to knowingly or unknowingly align ourselves with social and political networks that are perpetuating racism and marginalizing the weak. And the word of the Lord to his people this morning, straight out of Revelation 18, come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. Live separate and distinct lives. Don't sell your soul any longer to materialism or sexuality or independence. Be identified with the Savior Jesus and his community, the church, who lives contrary and out of step with culture. And come out of her not simply because you'll suffer loss if you're identified with Babylon. Come out of her because nothing compares with Jesus. Some of us grew up in churches where we're scared straight. And, and there's value in, I mean, last week's sermon was on the wrath of God. There's value in, in telling the whole gospel story. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. That's why the good news of faith and salvation in Christ is, is so good because condemnation apart from Christ is so hellish. But it's also come out of Babylon because it's so glorious when you discover that I, idols are deaf and mute and never fill. They don't satiate. There's something higher and much more glorious to live for than your 401k and hammocks and margaritas that are promised when you retire. Lord, have mercy on those who are counterfeiting the gospel, promising material wealth and health in this world through trust in Jesus. Lord, have mercy on those who are offering the counterfeit gospel of self-help and self-esteem rather than the message of self-denial and dependence on Christ's esteem. Do we even know the difference? I'll say it again. Lord, have mercy on the church that's offering 
the counterfeit gospel of self-help and self-esteem rather than the message of self-denial and dependence on Christ's esteem. That is, esteeming ourselves because God loves us so thoroughly and perfectly in Christ. Lord, have mercy on those who are counterfeiting the gospel by hijacking it for political and nationalistic ends. Lord, have mercy. And I'll close with this, a well-known Bonhoeffer quote from his book titled The Cost of Discipleship, in which he outs the counterfeit of cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea that grace did it all for me, so I don't need to change my lifestyle. That's not the gospel. But it's all too often been the gospel of the American church. It is not the biblical gospel. The believer who accepts the idea of cheap grace thinks they can continue to live like the rest of the world instead of following Christ in a radical way. We will either sell ourselves to Babylon or we will let Christ purchase us with his blood. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, have mercy on your church this morning. Have mercy on those outside your church and draw them into faith this morning. And have mercy on your church. Deliver us from the evil of a gospel hijacked and offered as a counterfeit to the costly grace of discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen.